0: Welcome to the Faith Element podcast for the May 7, 2023 session, focusing on Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. Going to the stoning, I'm David Cassidy.
1: I'm Nikki Hardiman. (laughs) I'm Daniel Glaze. (laughs) And I'm I'm Sir Montgomery.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. So, dear listeners, as you know, we we carry on a fair amount before we hit the record button. And (laughs) a lot of that can be around trying to decide what the title will be for a session. We actually name the sessions usually during the podcast recordings based on, you know, kind of where, where we're likely to go with the conversation, even though we really don't know where the conversation's going to go. I'm not sure I want to know this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How much of a grudge holder would you say you are?
2: I'm, I, I'm too forgetful. <laughs> so I, if you if you sideswipe me, I'll forget about it. So so not not a very good. I'm a very poor grudge holder.
3: Yeah, I, my wife would say, I think the same about me that I accept them differently in that I don't because she she can hold a grudge and she'll tell you she can hold a grudge. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just real laid back about stuff. But the problem is. I know I do hold grudges it's just a, a select few that really hurt and i i can hold on to those yeah
1: bert i'm so much like you i like i would say in general i'm not a grudge holder just in general but there are a couple that i probably won't ever let go and life does not require me to so but it is a rare thing for me to hold a grudge but if i am holding a grudge it's it's holding on tight
0: so I, I have two answers to this so one is i i don't hold grudges very very well one i just don't have the attention span for it you said forgetful daniel i just don't have the attention span yeah. i'm off to something else and and it just it takes too much energy to hold a grudge for very long the other is i have i'm old enough that i have learned that just because I'm in conflict with someone now doesn't mean that will always be the case. And and you find yourself sometimes on the path again, years later, with someone with whom you were banging heads and suddenly you're linking arms. And I've had that happen more than once. And so grudge holding can be counterproductive, I've learned, because you don't know where life is going to lead. You don't know where you're going to connect with this person again. but. That said, if you cut me deep enough, I will. I will. There is a very short list, but it's there. <laughs> so, but yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, I hope none of you are holding grudges against any of us over those title options, but they were a lot of fun, and of course, a lot. Of, there's a lot of movie and TV references there, which obviously means that there's Bert Montgomery at work somewhere here.
3: And so, Bert, uh, <laughs> we're still in Acts. Would you help us get started with this one? Well, sure. And I'm going to start right away with a movie reference. Some people consider Monty Python's Life of Brian to be one of the most sacrilegious and offensive movies ever made. Others maintain it is hands down the most brilliant satire of human religious, human religious activity ever. Now, I can't speak for everybody on this podcast, although I know I can with David Adams, who's not here with us today. But as for me and my house, we are firmly planted in the second category. It is easily the most brilliant satire of human religious behavior ever. And while it is certainly not a film for the easily offended, Monty Python's Life of Brian does manage to capture a lot of things that make us uncomfortable about our religion, including, including... The bloodlust that runs through our religious history whenever we baptize public murder in the name of God. One profoundly absurd, and yes, it is hilarious, scene is about the stoning of a man committed, convicted of blasphemy. A woman and her son are on the way to the stoning, and since women are not allowed to participate in the stonings, it's just written that way, they explained. And yes, they spoke in British accents in Hebrew time, apparently. There's a guy along the side of the road selling items one might need for a stoning, like fake beards for women so they can go participate. And of course, stones, smooth stones, ones with points, packets of gravel. This should be a good one this morning, the salesman says. It's a local boy. Enjoy yourselves. Have you ever noticed how some people always manage to find a way to turn death into a profitable enterprise? Excitement surges through the crowd, and some of those gathered just cannot control themselves from getting in a few practice throws at the blasphemer before the official blow whistles. Before the official blows the whistle, now trust me, the scene is very, very funny, but it is also very telling. The story of Stephen's stoning is a story about this very thing, about God's people who seem to have an insatiable appetite for judgment, and whenever we can manage to make it legal, cruel and brutal capital punishment. Stephen was chosen by the apostles to help bring some peace to different groups who were arguing and fighting amongst themselves within this young Jewish sect of Jesus followers, Christianity wasn't even its own thing really yet. It was still a sect within Judaism, and they were already fighting amongst each other. Frederick Beekner tells it this way, Stephen made a good long speech, the gist of that, the gist of which was that from year one, the Jews had always been an ornery lot, stiff-necked, he said, and circumcised as all get out in one department, but as cussed and mean as everybody else and all others. They'd given Moses a hard time in the wilderness, he said, and there hadn't been a saint or a prophet since that they hadn't had it in for. The way they treated Jesus was the last and worst example of how they were always not just missing the boat, but doing their darndest to sink it. The authorities were naturally enraged and illustrated the accuracy of Stephen's analysis by taking him out and stoning him to death. Ah, Thank goodness for Beekner. Anyway, God's people have a rich history of believing that we have to protect God. We have to defend God. In fact, if we're not around, God could get hurt. In fact, God may be exterminated. It's like we're God's secret service agents, though not really all that secret. And anyone who appears to pose a threat to God must, well, be eliminated. It's almost like we really think God could lose. So in fear, in anger, in paranoia, we're always on the lookout to stone somebody. Maybe not literally as much these days, although I'm beginning to question that. It does surprise me how quickly some Christian leaders are are quick to rush to defend capital punishment, war, torture, etc. As we hinted at last week, Daniel mentioned it in his opening, my own state of Mississippi certainly has had its share of public lynchings and celebrations around such. Picnic lunches sponsored by churches around these horrendous actions. Mainstream politicians today can now wrap themselves in prayer and praise songs and wave their Bibles and publicly, openly call for beatings and killings and imprisonment of their enemies. And we must never forget the terrible antichrist-like images from just a few short years ago at our capital, hanging gallows, surrounded by Christian crosses, and chants about public in- execution mixed in with songs of praise to God. Luke, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, reminds us that there was another young man at this stoning, not just Stephen, who got stoned there was an overly enthusiastic up and coming jewish leader who was allowed to hold all, all the garments and whatever else these these men and perhaps women with fake beards who were convinced they were doing the work of god were there to pummel stephen to death with rocks so Steve, this man named saul was there holding all their stuff so they had free hands to throw rocks saul himself would grow up a little in a few years and Go on to hunt Christians for sport, jailing and torturing and executing and all such manner of righteous violence. Of course, we also know that Saul met the risen Christ on the road to another hunting, on the road to another hunting expedition, and eventually becomes known as Paul, who wrote, what, two-thirds of our New Testament? Beekner writes, Years later, when he had become a Christian himself, and was under arrest just as Stephen had, has been. Paul spoke of it. Again, he wasn't called Saul anymore, but now Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the great letter-writing saint, and he still remembered how it had been that day when he stood guard over a pile of coats and ties and watched a young man die. The problem for us is that we've experienced a Christianity ever since Constantine that is in bed with empires and principalities and powers of this world. And as we mentioned again in last week's episode, that means we we tend to see the enemies and the scapegoats of those in power and those against our self-interest. We see them as having to be God's enemies, in fact, God's scapegoats that must be offered up as sacrifice. We assume having accepted the political, economic, and military powers as one and the same as our Christian culture. We come to this text year in and year out and try to find ways that, oh, look, we're being persecuted like Stephen. We're always the ones being persecuted. And then maybe Paul, not not Saul, the one who's doing the persecuting, but we see ourselves later as Paul thinking that we're always speaking God's truth. The challenge for us with this text now is to push our churches, to push our pastors, to push ourselves to ask, what if the people we see as our enemies, what if the people we see as a threat to God Are the Stevens? What if we are the intentionally ignorant stoners who are unable or unwilling to see God?
2: Yeah, Bert, that, that last thought is what really got me. Where it hits me is that we have to be very careful whenever we think we are defending God or God is on our side we have to be very very careful because as is so often the case we easily turn into chief judge and prosecutor when that's never what god asks of us but to stand on the side of those who are being trampled i really appreciate your your background today bert
0: that that was powerful bert and, you know, I, I'm having trouble getting that image out of my head about, you know, how easy it is to reach down and pick up that, that stone. And that image that you painted so so clearly of Saul holding everybody's things so they could easily grab that rock and throw it. And it, and I, my mind immediately went to the way I so often feel when I'm reading the news or if I'm on social media. And I feel like. There's so many places that I am trying, that 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 something or someone is trying to wind me up, so I'll pick up the stone, and they're enabling, they're they're holding my stuff, so that I can be angry about this thing I just read about, about something someone said or somebody did, and I, I really have wondered of late, because it, it's so pervasive, this push to be angry, this push to pick up the stone that maybe part of our spiritual practice in this day is to refuse to be angered into picking up
3: a stone.
1: Bert, thank you for helping us to think about the ways that violence shows up in our faith practice. It It is one of those things that it's very easy for me to get kind of self-righteous about other people's blatant violence. You know, I can rattle off all the sins of Christianity through the years. It was Christians who committed the Holocaust. There were the Crusades, and it was Christians who fought to keep slaves. You could just go on and on and on. And those things, when I think about them, they get me so angry. With reason, because I think of Christianity as something that is here to bring peace. And that when we misinterpret it into violence, we are the antithesis of what christianity is to be but i realize that my anger is a part of that same violence my well or what the the actions i would love to take <laughs> as a response to my anger anger is not bad but the actions i would love to take to stop what i see are not a part of the way of Christ. And so it is easy to go to violence as people of faith because so often we have been taught that it's about who's in and who's out. And so it is good for us to be reminded of how easy it is to move into that place, whether we act out that violence or not. And to be reminded, so that we can look for more peaceful ways to respond.
2: And as we're recording this, we've just finished Holy Week and Easter, and I'm struck by the, you know, that that scene when Jesus tells his disciple who just took a sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers, he was, he was defending, defending Christ. What more noble cause might there be? And what does Christ say? Put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who live by violence will die by violence. And consistently, the Christ we read about in the gospels tells us that violence only begets more violence.
1: You know, and I think it's really human to want to protect those that we love. And very often, if you trace violence, the violence that we see its roots back, there's, there's something that people are trying to protect. And I think that that is why true faith is so important, because it does take something like what the Holy Spirit can give us to lay down our weapons and choose to go a different path, regardless of the risk that it brings to us. It is something that requires power that we do not have on our own.
3: I think the temptation The temptation that I feel, and I I know that many others in our more moderate to progressive circles of faith can fall into, especially over the last six or seven years, because everything has been so politicized, the temptation is to think to to fall into the camp of us versus them just as easily as we accuse <laughs> others of doing to us or or you know people doing to the LGBTQ community or to 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 immigrants or or to women or or whoever or to people of a different religious tradition Ju- Judaism Islam and and so then those of us who are friends of all of those groups automatically will write off all the people in the groups persecuting them or attacking them or passing legislation or speaking badly against them, even though they're members of our own family, even though they're members of our churches, even though at one point they may have been us. Uh, It it just gets so easy to form a mob mentality on either extreme to exclude and attack the other. And, And I was reminded of that by reading some stuff by Glenn Henson, who was being viciously attacked, not not with stones and not with pitchforks. (laughs) And and although he did say he was thankful not to be living in medieval times because that's how he he would have been burned at the stake. But but by words and by people attacking his livelihood and his job and his reputation and his family. And then someone actually asked to meet with him. And he did. He met with him. He said he talked for a few hours in his office. And the person was confronting him about things that he thought Henson had said, because Henson got misquoted out of context many times for, for other political aims. But this person said, oh, OK, I understand. I see. And then later went on to go ahead and continue to call for Henson's firing as an unbelieving, unbiblical, unchristian heretic, but saying, he showed me incredible grace and mercy while we sat in <laughs> Uh, you know, and and, and Glenn mentioned to, in his autobiography talked about this, listening to the person's trauma, how this person had been physic not physically, but but spiritually hurt by a quote liberal Baptist preacher who had manipulated this man, and so this man's vengeance is coming out of personal hurt and trauma, and Henson was able to see that and have mercy for him. And the man appreciated Henson's grace and then went on to you know publicly attack him. But but I think that's the thing is that we if if we can remind ourselves, like Paul, that I used to be a Saul, that I used to maybe carry some of these feelings, these prejudices, these these illusions of how other people were. If I can remember myself, and then if I can see that maybe they're acting out of trauma, they're acting out of real fear. Right? I mean, there's a lot of real fear and grief that the way many of people who look like me have been able to live for 100-something years in this country is changing. That's fearful because we may think that the people who are coming alongside of us and expanding this are actually trying to take things away from us, which they're not. Right. It's not. What, what's the saying? It's not pie. <laughs> you, know? Right. You, it, you know, more for them doesn't mean less for me. It just means. Um, but th- there's a true fear there. And I think this text invites us to to get to our hearts and our motivation on either side. So that we don't get complacent thinking, well, they're the ones who are going out for all these other you know scapegoats. But then, are, are those of us who are aligning ourselves with the scapegoats? Are we now scapegoating the people who are doing the scapegoating? That becomes the issue that this text, I think, can raise for us. Well, it's a it's a tough passage, right? It's a
0: tough image. This passage about Stephen and those who were quick to pick up stones. And I, I have to say, you know. I feel some conviction out of our conversation um, about how easy it is for for me to pick up a stone, for us as a community to pick up stones, and and so I don't have a lot of helpful big summary words to throw to throw at us. So I'm gonna read I'm gonna read something from Liturgies from Below, which I've mentioned before by Claudio Carvales. and it's just a portion. Of a litany called God of Unity and Courage. God of Unity and Courage, in the midst of empires, we unite our voices and bravely pray to you. In the midst of greed, we unite our voices and bravely pray for you. In the midst of violence, we unite our voices and bravely pray to you in the midst of insecurity we unite our voices and bravely pray to you in the midst of injustice we unite our voices and bravely pray to you we bravely pray with one voice and one faith in the name of the god of glory and justice we pray amen
2: amen Amen.
0: thank you all for this good conversation
2: Thank Thank you. you. Thank
0: you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study Curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.